to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, here we are once more into the breach again, my friend. Yes. To the barricade. To the barricade, the bunker. <laughs> One more day. By the way, uh, I am going for puberty again, so this is <laughs> – my voice is a little deeper. I'm uh, – whatever is going around has come around, so. Don't breathe on me. I'm not. I'll just breathe on this mic, so whoever's here next, that'll be their problem. Disinfect that thing. <laughs> so today we want to talk about – we have – recently we had President Trump who nominated a Supreme Court justice, although also – on the religious front, big news, at the National Prayer Breakfast, he actually did ask for intercessory prayer. Right, for Arnold Schwarzenegger. He said, look, you know, when I came out, when I left The Apprentice, I mean, everybody, Mark, Burnett, everybody, I mean, they didn't know what to do, and they bet on this big movie actor, right? Big ratings are terrible. So pray for Arnold. Pray for the ratings. Yeah, yeah. I That was probably uh, my favorite part was after the guy who spoke was the chaplain for the Senate. He goes, that was a hell of a talk. We're going to nominate you. Like, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's this appointed position. We're gonna, I think it's the Senate, but we're going to get on them. To- yeah, I, I'm, I, yeah I, I love when I've had people say that was a hell of a sermon, Bill. But uh, yeah, I think um, I probably really have um, misjudged him as a, as a spiritual leader that he is between you know the deep theology that happened at the prayer breakfast, his appointment of Jerry Falwell Jr. I mean, we are, uh, we definitely are making America Christian again. Well, the thing that I find interesting is I don't know whether he was asking to pray that Arnold's ratings would be boosted or if it was imprecatory, if he wants the ratings to go south. Like, I don't know what actually yeah, the content I, of I the don't prayer. Know. You know, actually, I read it, by the way, I read an article that was not particularly, I'm not going to cite it because I don't think it was that. Well, great, but it, it had an idea. That That's how we were. So if you're a worthwhile article, you we won't be excited. If you're not, we will still quote you, but we won't cite you. We won't cite you. Maybe for your own. You have to earn the virtue of citation. It here. might be for your own protection. It could be that yeah, too. It could I, be an act of kindness. But uh, you and I actually, I think we talked about this off uh, off the record one time, but uh, this person was citing some uh, research. Why are so many Christians, are certain branches of Christianity behind uh, Donald Trump? And this person was arguing that if you uh, have an authoritarian view of the world, yeah, uh, that you're attracted to these kind of folks. So it makes sense. If you don't think a woman can be an elder or a deacon, let alone a pastor, you uh, let alone with all the other baggage Hillary Clinton had, you're going to have trouble um, – Voting for um, a woman. And the other thing is, if you're kind of, if you have a theology that kind of indirectly supports misogyny, then uh, when a person acts that way, it doesn't necessarily put you off as much as it would have other things. What if your theology directly supports misogyny? I guess you also go. That's right. You also go. I'm trying not to be, I'm trying to be nuanced. But, but well, you know, also though, I think that that's, and we've talked about Jonathan Haidt and people like that. I think, I mean, even on secular people, like one of the things, uh, Freakonomics did, did a thing a couple of weeks ago on trust and societal trust and how, you know, it's the whole Putnam bowling alone stuff that, you know, there's not a lot right. of, you know, they, they talked about in Italy, which has widespread kind of corruption, and dysfunction in the government. But they looked within sub-government, like regions, like townships or however they organize it. And they found in areas where there were high, there's high social trust, the government functioned a lot better, functioned even better than it does here right. in some spaces. And then even though o- overall, 
there's some of the worst corruption in the right. Western world, in the industrialized world, in their government. And the idea was that like the hard, the hard thing is it's difficult to breed social trust with diversity. And that's kind of what you need. Right. And so I think some of the attract attraction to author, authoritarianism, or at least, and ben, if we want to gloss it in a, in a, a more positive authority, like, you right. know, one of the, Jonathan Haidt said, one of the things that he, he quickly lost interest in the Occupy movement because they couldn't, it was too anarchist right, and, right. and without any sense of authority, you couldn't be actually a, a legitimate political force. And so I think for some people with the diversity that exists in a country like ours, it feels like things are going off the rails and people get, right. have a difficult time trusting and they, and they want authority for a cohesive purpose. And right. I think that, I think that a lot of secular, it's interesting, Ross Doth, it was just on Orthodox and he said, Trump did well. Like if you look in the primaries, he did well with the people that don't go to church, but really want to say Merry Christmas. They kind of nominally <laughs> conservatively. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know a lot of those people. Yeah. Yeah. He said yeah. a lot. You're, generally you're more, you're more devout people supported like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. But he right. said, and the other people he did well with were secular Republicans right. like, in places like the Northeast. Trump did very well in the primaries. Right. So it's just a very interesting. Yeah. No, I, I, I do think it's, it's an interesting thing. And, and, uh, uh, you and I spoke earlier uh, this week. Uh, Joe Scarborough was doing, you know, he's kind of just talked to the people, the Trump supporters, you know, and why a lot of people who care about the Constitution as as well as the um, kind of traditional left are having all kinds of problems with Trump. Um, but the grassroots who support him, you know, hey, that's good. We keep those dangerous people out. I mean, there's there's not nuance uh, deregulation, that's great. You know, that if we're going to dump a little coal into the rivers, that's okay. Uh, so, uh, Bill, those regulations were never meant to protect streams. They were meant to bankrupt coal. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's ironic to me. And again, I mean, poor people, I mean, I have to, the expression I was going to use is we don't have, we're not on a delay. So I'll, let me change my expression. But poor people tend to do things that continue to hurt them and uh, help them stay poor. And, and um, you know, I was born in West Virginia and the, you know, the coal industry and the chemical industry poisoned the water not too long ago. And, you know, they, people are dead because they ignored regulations and stuff. But, you know, for whatever reason, and I, I mean, I understand some of the reasons, people continue to fight for things that aren't necessarily good for them. I mean, I... They have taken, they have destroyed mountains in West Virginia. And that, the place where there used to be beautiful hills, they've totally ripped them apart and replaced them, contaminated all the water while they did it. So, you know, uh, and people hate that, but somehow they don't make you know, the connection. You know, they've been raped by interest and they get little in return. But for whatever reason, um, you know, they continue to support people that will continue to exploit them. Well, there you go, and it's uh, it's morning in America here in the bunker. <laughs> morning in America. Yeah. I, so, but he actually nominated Neil Gorsuch, which you and I had talked about. What's interesting? One of the things that's interesting. Yeah, it kind of throws us off when he does quality things. Yeah, yeah, and I and I go some of our listeners who uh, who uh, who probably are going to disagree with some of what we're about to say about this guy. Yeah, I think Gorsuch is the youngest person to be appointed to the court since Clarence Thomas. Right? He's forty nine. Right. And he is, among other things, I mean, he's a pretty respected guy across the aisles. I mean, people are always going to have ideological differences that right. are um, the breakdown on party lines and right. 
so forth. But I mean, he's pretty respected and he actually went left, I think a pretty lucrative partnership or something, a law firm to go do a defill at Oxford. And he wrote a treatise on natural law and the significance of natural law for the dignity of human life. So, um, before we give our weigh-ins on this nomination, uh, we're actually when he talks about natural law, we're in our we're in our world here, so we can we actually are about to talk about something we know a little bit about. The emphasis on little and bit. <laughs> All right, so let's define natural law for those who forget uh, the last time we uh, this was debated in the public arena. Well, you know, it's interesting that I think there's actually two ways it's used, and they're distinct, but overlap. I mean, sometimes when we talk about natural law, we're talking about a sort of moral arc, a a moral fiber or grain in the universe that's discernible. So that basically if anybody without something like special revelation or a sacred text, you don't need the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or or the Torah or the Sermon on the Mount to know certain things about how people ought to be treated about basic dignity and rights and things like this, that there's a basic code of morality. Now there's another way it's used to say that basically laws are derive their authority from a greater morality that transcends the government. Right. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Yeah. Yeah. And it's my understanding my little, little, little understanding of the distinction is that, is that you could, I guess, uh, be a natural law, theorist in the first sense, and yet not carried over into the legal tradition. Likewise, right. you could believe that there are something like moral standards that transcend the government recognition of them and not believe in a full worked out natural theology or natural law right. or morality, speaking, if that makes any sense. But well, it's, a, yeah. it's a nuanced confu- like point, but... Well, we alluded to it in a previous podcast recently when we contrasted Stott's idea, or not Stott. Stout, Stout. Jeff Stout with uh, Stanley Haravos about the idea of are there, are, there inherent, uh, are there inherent things that we know to be right or wrong? And inherent, I've got, uh, you can't see it, but I put brackets around in here. <laughs> air, air quotes. Air quotes. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, and Stout. I would almost try to reread some of that today, but I couldn't find my copy. Now I got to get it on Kindle. If anybody's out there and has my copy of it. And it's not me. I do not have your copy. Yeah. You have my Zoll system. I I know. I told you. I I got that. Everybody. I'm putting it on the record. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Stout basically argues that, that, you know, even if there is something like the Tao, like CSO, such natural law, you don't get it. It doesn't exist except in instantiations that are cultural and historic and situated. So, the idea that we'd be able to just find it right. is, you know, it, it, it's a moot point. It well, because you can't leave your situation anyway. But, you know, I, I think, for instance, um, you and I were talking about this. I, uh, full disclosure here, I'm actually teaching. Will we get, what I'm about to say, are, am I, are we going to lose listeners or gain listeners about this? I don't know. All right. Here I'm, we not, go. I'm not da- rating speed dance. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm actually teaching a class, uh, a master's level class at a Buddhist institute right now. Um, I'm teaching homiletics to um, Buddhist. The word institute sounds so un-Buddhist. Like it's, I know. Oh, they're uh, at the Buddhist institute. Well, well, yeah, it's cool. They actually teach a lot of different things there. And because of my ecumenical interfaith stuff, they traditionally have had Christians or frequently had Christians preach their preaching class. So it's a fascinating thing. But in my first lecture, you know, I, I tried to situate – 
uh, origins and where we are, what we share and what we don't share. And um, it's just fascinating to me that in the sixth century BC, roughly that broadly, that sixth century BC, there's all these ideas that are coming to, coming to, to, to bear at the same time. I mean, that is a century of Pythagoras and Heraclitus and Parmenides, Parmenides, I'm sorry, uh, Isaiah of Babylon, Confucius, Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Zoroaster. Well, Zoroaster's debates, the, the date is debated, but this is an I, this is a, a century where there's these. It's like the '60s for folk music. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. It, I um, I was talking about this because. Um, you referred me to a, a very fine article by Cardinal Ratzinger, who became. That's a great essay, right? It's a great essay. Uh, re- Basically, he, it's he's trying to think about the history of religions. And he says, you know, like on the one hand, you had this old school nineteenth century approach that sort of said, "Well, religions are kind of looking for the same thing," and people realize, "Well, no, that's not very, that's not quite nuanced enough." And then people say, "Well, all religions are just incommensurate; you can't really put them in conversation." And he was trying to middle way where he thinks, for all religions, diversity that you can see. Once you get past the mythological stage, that one of three things happen. Either you go with, you you leave the the sort of primitive myths and the Greco-Roman gods, Thor, you leave it behind in favor of A, either something like mystical identity, a mystical union, where all reality is one, and it's a different kind of spirituality. And the difference between you and I is really illusory, and really all, like, that redemption is kind of... Brahmin or Nirvana, something like that. You see it in your Platonism. You become everything or nothing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he says there's also the path of enlightenment, which you see not just in the modern enlightenment, but in the pre-Socratic period, where there's an attempt to use human reason to discern the good life and spirituality. And then he thinks there's the other is the prophetic kind of revolution, where a prophet maintains the the otherness of the divine, but takes out some of the anthropomorphism. So the revelation is really different than the God is not just our imagination writ large. And he thinks you see this in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Right. You know, and and really clearly Judaism emerges from the exile, which happens to be in the sixth century, clearly monotheistic. Uh, and you see this, you know. <clears throat> As opposed to he knows the right. and it's very, really interesting when I put a quote. I up, paid attention to history. Yeah, religions. It's good for you. It's really, it's 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 really interesting when I put up a quote from Parmenides, and then a Buddha right beside it, and also Pythagoras, and they said very similar. Look things. at you, film four. I like that. What I like that you're you're making the Parmenides to Buddha. That's cool. I like yeah. that. Well, but to me, that kind of argues, but you know. So, you know, supported by uh, Ratzinger's theory that all these cultures from Greece all the way to China were emerging. They were emerging from the mythological. And so the fact that there are similar things being said, there are different tracks. Okay, but they're not all the same. And he thinks there's overlap. So you find mysticism in Christianity. You find, yeah, so there's... Well, I think you and I, I mean, my my spirituality is 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 both, you know, radical monotheistic with some mysticism and a good good dose of enlightenment as well. So I think, in, and you can see that in other religions as well, but the fact that similar questions were emerging in very diverse situations to me points to at least some kind of common way of thinking. You know, whether you want to call that natural law or natural theology or whatever, similar questions were being answered, asked. And you have that 
throughout history, you have it in different places. So there seems to be a common uh, a common set of issues that humanity are consistently confronted with. Do you want my bold thesis? Here it is. I already hear it. Ready? Hold on. Wait a minute. Okay. We should, we should I'm ready sound now. effects. I'm ready now. We should use your ringtone that or the trumpets. It's so <laughs> right. like it's arresting. Every time I hear it, I, it's kind of arresting. I want to go out and you know either fight the sheriff in Nottingham or go on a fox hunt when I hear my ring. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So bellicose. Yeah, I, I think that there is no such thing as like natural law or natural theology in the way that we think. I think what there are. Th- All right, give your give your bias. This is a student of Karl Barth. Yeah, speaking. I think I, I yeah I think this is yeah I mean but I do I want to say that like. There are just theologies of nature, and I think there are better or worse okay, theologies no, let, of nature. We'll define, we'll define that. You well, mean I mean, I think that that rather than natural law, rather than say that there's this kind of general knowledge out there available about the the ultimate things of life, about human identity and destiny, and the nature of human being, and morality and spirituality, I, I think that what you have is that religious traditions come up with theologies that make sense of nature, the world they find themselves in. And the ones that are more compelling or most compelling, people start to argue, well, see, everybody can just see this from human experience. But I think actually, it's why like in the Old Testament, even though Genesis is first, it it, it really, the people are redeemed before they write creation stories. They they don't sit around and think, oh, well, now we know that God is this kind of creator and ordered the world in these many days and you know, and then so we need to pray to that God. No, it, right. It's it's later after the redemptive experience right. that they begin to see that the connection of their redemption to the creation order of the cosmos. And so I think that there can I, are. Can yeah. I ask one question about that is that merely, but that could just merely be historical. In other words, that the Pentateuch is compiled in a time where they're both thinking and about thinking about the Exodus and rethinking the Exodus in terms of the the. Return of the exile. I mean, I, I agree with you that that's Genesis one is about Exodus and it's about the return. It's both about Exodus and the new Exodus. But is that inherent or is that just accidental because that's when the thing is compiled? Well, I mean, I I, I would say that the traditions probably develop late. I mean, I think there are certain kind of traditions that are more important than others, and I think, it, and again, I, I I would argue this, although I'd have to do a bunch of research to validate it, but. I'm not, you know, we're, yeah, we, well, we're, we have our own citation this is, this rules. This is new persuasive words. Exactly. If it's persuasive <laughs> and new, we we're have, into it. We have done research, but not today. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's not to say that I don't, I don't like what you're saying. I think that's not to say that there's not overlap. Right. But I think the overlap is more a result of the traditions mining, like uncovering what it, it, things about reality and, and comparing notes. Right. And so I, th- I tend to think like, it's not self-evident wherever you start that some of these things that we call natural law, uh, uh, you know, that uh, uh, certain insights about the human person right. or morality or dignity. I think that while there are, we have some of these things in common, uh, I, I think it, it, it's not as though it exists in the ether or something that you just pull out of the air with the right algorithm or something. I think it's it's no, I, I think it's again it's a, it's a theologizing about nature. So it's this is a, and I will say this is I mean you see this in Karl Barth and his the guy wrote four volumes on the doctrine of creation. Each of them is like 500 right. plus pages. So, but what he's doing is thinking about from the perspective of the story of Israel and Jesus, what does that tell us about 
the created order that all human beings inhabit, whether or not they're children, you know, winning witnesses to the God of Israel revealed in Jesus Christ or not. And I think that's basically really what's going on in, so, so. in any kind of thing that calls itself natural law or natural theology. So, for instance, the fact that the vast majority of ethical systems across uh, religious boundaries are very similar. You would say that that is a anthrop. It, it's it's what anthropology does when it's encountering kind of just the natural need to order things. Is that what? Is yeah, that, and I'm not saying there's there aren't there's not revelation. Like I mean, I think there are revelations of the triune God, not as the triune God. So I think that 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 Christ plays in a thousand places. Right. But I think that it it generally. I don't think there's a sort of universal baseline principle that's discoverable any other way than from the particular. Okay. So so you buy, in many ways, you, you buy Carl Barth's total jettisoning of, of for, well, both what would be kind of Enlightenment natural theology and the Roman Catholic Church's natural theology. I'm sympathetic. To Barth's. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean, I think that, like, you, you, like I can take a sort of... Catholic, I'm sympathetic to a Catholic position as it's articulated by like von Balthasar, which is probably not saying a lot because he was a buddy of Barton, <laughs> but he was Catholic. But I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, no, I mean, practically it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that I don't seek to be persuasive about things that appear to be universally true. I just don't think you can, I don't assume that if a person really just puts their thinking cap on, since it's natural law or natural theology they'll really i think that it, it, i generally don't assume that it's just there and if they would just it's like one of those things you know those things that used to be big in the mall where it's the the it's like a poster and it's like an abstract design but if you look at it hard enough an image rises off it like the space <laughs> shuttle or a dolphin right so like i don't think it, and, and you sit there oh, why am i looking around just don't focus your eyes i don't look at it quite that way like it's just there everybody can see it if they just learn the right eye fixture I think actually it, it it does still take kind of faith conversion to see the things that are the the signs of the redeemer in the created order. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to think about that. I, I think I might be a little more sympathetic to natural law. One of the things that strikes me, and this is, um, I need to thank uh, Danielle Hartman of the Hartman Institute for this particular illustration, but and again, I didn't look at the passage uh, where God and Abraham are talking about um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. It might be Genesis eighteen. All right. It's in that. It's in the neighborhood of Genesis. Yeah. 18. And it's fifteen. Yeah, seventeen, eighteen. Yeah. All right. right so when you know God, you know, Chris is such a weird passage. So you got the three guys showing up. You know, Sarah's in the tent laughing. And then, you know, the three guys or the one have a conversation among themselves saying, what should we tell? Should we tell Abraham what we're, this is a paraphrase. Should we tell Abraham what we're about to do? And the, the conclusion is, well, we've made this covenant with him. So we need to let him know what we're about to do. And is it need to know or not? I don't know. Anyway, so, so God tells him, I'm about to destroy. I'm, and then it emerges. There's the two, it, the three become one. And so then you now realize you're talking to God. You know, it's again, I, I'm not prepared. It's like the Power Rangers. Yeah, Power Rangers, right. Uh, this That passage is probably best uh, interpreted under the influence of Piyoti. But at any rate. Uh, well, I mean, which passages, which passages aren't? I mean, that's the, que that's the question. I told you about the friend I had who came from a totally secular background. 
and was converted like through Pentecostal fundamentalist charismatics. But for a year, she had she would have her quiet time while she was smoking pot. And then someone finally told her, you know, we can't do that. And she said to me, she goes, well, I, you know, I want to just be, I want to be faithful. But you know what? My quiet times are so much better. <laughs> anyway. I but, bet. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm not an advocate. I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't smoke. Now with Jeff Sessions, Bill Maher said, you know, like they said, what do you, what, someone interviewed me, what, what's your, what's your advice to people that are pot smokers with Sessions? And he's like, don't uh, piss off your dealer. You know, that guy who you couldn't stand dealing with. It was kind of weird. You had to pretend you like liked his stories and we're listening. You had a skanky girlfriend. And he thought, oh, it's legal now. Screw him. Don't piss him off because <laughs> you might need him in this administration. Yeah, Jeff Sessions is a, is a frightening choice for that position. And shame on you. Shame on Orrin Hatch. You should know better. Gosh, am I. Shame on him. At any rate. Shame. 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 Now, shame? Come, now comes the shame. We're, we're hungry for uh, <laughs> Game of Thrones. Anyway. In that, you know, so God tells Abraham, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, the paraphrase is, uh, how can the judge of the just act unjustly? Because there's a potential that in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, he will destroy just people. And so Abraham appeals to God that there is a kind of a justice, of a, a framework of justice that's outside of God himself. I mean, it's the difference between what is a commandment and an ordinance? And, you know, the rabbis would make the distinction. Some things are, would be wrong, would be a command, even if God didn't say that they were a command. And then other things like circumcision and kosher eating are just a law because God said they were. But there, even in the Hebrew scripture, there's this appeal to this idea. How can the judge of the, you know, the just act unjustly? Abraham is calling God to task. Uh, as if there is an independent sense of right and wrong apart from even God, uh, that there's an idea of justice out there. Now, there, again, you can have an argument against natural law from the Bible as well, but I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Um, um, in other words, against, for instance, the late medieval thinking that if God wanted to, tomorrow God could call evil good and good evil because it's also radically independent. I don't think anyone wants to talk about God that way. No, because that's like a bad serial drama writer where you're like oh gosh you totally just screwed up the plot <laughs> well we should by the way we should get we originally were going to talk about uh, you say what you're going to say i see you have opened to a passage well i don't know <laughs> uh, go ahead keep going make no, your point I, no i made my point i'm just saying it raises questions for instance i want to say uh, and, and I, I can argue against myself here for instance i want to affirm, you often do often do. you can argue with yourself i argue with go myself ahead. frequently uh uh, when you're not around, I have to find someone intelligent to talk to. Exactly. But um, this idea that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, I can argue that that's not self-evident. Well, of course, most of the world would, would argue that's not self-evident. I mean, a lot of the world, some of our allies, so Saudi Arabia, I mean, yeah, this is right. not, you know, that, I mean, that's one of the things like Ross Dothit was on Bill Maher a couple of years ago. And he says, well, you know, what about these... He's, he said, "Bill, where do you get human rights? Universal human rights? It's like it's not. It's that that's a metaphysical truth. Show me it. Show me right. universal human rights under a microscope." Right. Exactly. Exactly. But that's something that uh, it's it's funny how there's still and whether you're on the left or on the right, there's a common appeal to that in our culture. Yeah, I think. Well, it's really interesting that in Tim Keller's book, "The Reason for God," he argues he talks about the traditional arguments for God, like the the ontological argument and the cosmological arguments, things like this. And he calls them like hints of God. 
Right. Well, that's what Aquinas thought they were. Yeah. Well, he didn't. He, Aquinas didn't really call them proofs. Well, that depends how we read Aquinas, because I think. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't think. I, I think Aquinas knew that he wasn't absolutely proving God. Ways to talk about. God. Well, first, I mean, what Aquinas thought you could prove is not the triune God. He thought you could prove. But there's a deity. You could prove something like. The, the supreme being, you know, right. that's you can, you, the, the, you the first it. cause, but that wouldn't, but yeah, and we could, re, there's, there's kind of, one day we could talk about this, it's something I know very little about as well, but like, but there are different Aquinas interpreters, be like John Finnis, who's a kind of, kind of a Kantian natural law person, and there are people that have a more Wittgensteinian kind of take on Aquinas. There, I exhausted all my big word Aquinas interpreters. And we lost the rest of our uh, audience. There you go. My earlier Buddhist comment. But uh, yeah, uh, where were where were we? Well, before we we we're uh, just talking about this idea of self-evident truth. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and, and Keller says you know, he, but he talked about so he has a chapter called like the ultimate argument or something, and he says the argument that I always find myself engaged with with secular skeptic types in New York is people that are really ambiv- ambivalent or ambiguous about their views on the divine or ultimate reality or God, but they are so sure of their ethics. And yeah, the and the yeah, UN human funny. rights and he's like basically yeah. that yeah how could you what you have it's like it's like in Top Gun with like Maverick your ego's writing checks your body can't cash <laughs> well basically your 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 morality is writing checks that your ontology or your metaphysics or your theology can't cash I, I think that's a I think that's a brilliant and I think you've got to you've got to ask one question either way you know if you're going to make if you're going to stand on these ethical positions then you got to adjust your yeah, just your ontology. Yeah, yeah. This is this is the ultimate truth, I think, of Plato's Republic. Like, yeah. it, it, should there be a necessary connection between ontology and ethics? You know, what is and what's all, what we ought to do. It was interesting. I had lunch with an atheist recently, a, a delightful person, and um, you know, they were you know finally came out that they said, well, what about all the evil and stuff in the world? And I kept going, yeah, that's that's awful, and you know. And what about God? I go, yeah, it causes me some issues. And I you know, kept going on. And the fact that I kept agreeing with them kind of threw them off about how difficult that is. And uh, and I said, yes, the problem of evil is a, is a real one. And then I said to them, uh, what do you do about the problem of good? What do you do about the problem of good? If, ah, right, if, yeah. if evil is a problem. And, and yeah. why? And Paul Kingler makes this argument. Like, why are human beings evolutionary? It, do, it doesn't seem to benefit us evolutionarily to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful. Right. And so, again, it could be an evolutionary mistake. Okay, and that's a, that's a theoretical possibility. But if evil is going to be a problem, then equally the good and love is going to be a problem as well. That has to be explained. Because, and again, that gets back to your, you know, or there has to be some consistency. If you're going to say that evil... Uh, destroys the idea that there's a God out there, if it's good, then you have to come up with, well, from whence cometh good as well. Well, we, we've said it all. Yeah, we didn't quite get to our Supreme Court assessment, but... Maybe uh, we'll do a follow-up on that. We do a follow-up. I will say this. To me, the most important thing right now, looking at the dangers of this administration, is that our the government, you know, we're not weak. Our hope is not in Congress. Um, a Supreme Court that respects the Constitution may be the only thing that prevents us from uh, some really bad things happening. The best laid plans of mice and men. Love is but a song we sing Fears we will die 
Cuando andar le auto Returns for us at least We are but a moment of sunlight Fading in the grass Come on, people now Smile on your brother Everybody get together Just one key unlocks the 